We are live. Welcome to Forward Guidance Live. We are joined by Joseph Wang, aka Fed Guy, former senior trader for the Fed, and the convexity maven himself, Harley Bassman. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. So you guys both have so much experience and knowledge about what we're going to talk about today. You know, Joseph, you used to ease for the Fed. You know, people talk about quantitative easing. That was you. You know, you were the one on the desk buying bonds. And Harley, you were kind of on the opposite side of the desk in private markets doing very complicated interest rate derivatives. You were the founder of the Move Index, which is kind of like the VIX for for bonds. Uh, so I want, I'm tremendously excited about it. Uh, people watching this right now, please feel free to write some questions and I'll, I'll direct them towards you two at the end. Harley, I want to start with you because the yield curve is flattening. It has been rapidly flattening and it's close to inversion. And typically the, uh, you know, an inverted yield curve is a sign of a recession. And just to read, uh, you know, your most recent words, you said the interest rate market is the single best forecaster of the economy. And presently it is flashing warning. So how worried should investors be about the inverted uh, flattening of the yield curve? And how worried should the Federal Reserve be given that tomorrow we're, you know, we're having some big news from the Fed? Well, I mean, my general mantra is it's never different this time. So I guess I got to stick with the program. And, and, and as a reminder, I wrote about the yield curve inverting in November 2018. And I said, everything was great. Don't know why, don't know how. Um, but we're supposed to get a recession in spring or March, April of 2020. And lo and behold, we have one. Did, 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 did the yield curve predict COVID? I suspect not, but magically uh, it, it did work. Um, we had uh, um, Simplify where I work. Uh, we have a monthly uh, webinar. Our guest last week was um, Cam Harvey, who is the, basically the inventor of the yield curve as a predictive tool. That was his dissertation uh, uh, X number of years ago. He uses, um, most Wall Street people use twos, tens, so the 10-year rate minus the two-year rate. Um, uh, he, his PhD was on the three-month treasury versus the 10-year treasury. <clears throat> and um, that has not inverted yet, but it's, it's getting close. And um, I, I guess the question really is, can I point the finger at the Fed, sorry, Joe, and say that there are thumbs on the scale here? Um, I'd like to. But once again, it's never different this time. We haven't agreed yet, but I think we have to be really respectful uh, of the market. Yeah, so let's just put this 10-year Treasury yield minus the two-year Treasury yield on screen. Inverted means that it would be below the black line. And those gray little thin bars are recessions in uh, you know, uh, 1990, 2001, uh, 2000. Eight and very briefly in 2020. So you see that an inversion, a yield curve inversion has, quote, predicted many of the past recessions. Now the 10 2 spread is at about 30 basis points. About a week ago, it was at 20 basis points. Joseph, how worried about this should investors be? You know, I, I think I look at this chart and, and it is an amazing track record, just like Harley mentioned. As you can see right before the gray shaded regions, you see the yield curve invert, and then you see the gray shaded regions, which is, which is the recession. Well, I, I suspect though that, so I suspect that there's some changes in the market though. So what's going to happen tomorrow is very, very likely that Powell is going to announce quantitative tightening. And in part, the logarithm of the treasury is in part, it's about economic views of market participants, but in part, it's also supply and demand. So I'm thinking that, you know, this could actually re-steepen going forward because Quantitative tightening is going to unleash so much more supply and duration into the market. 
you're talking about maybe at least three trillion in the three years. And then on top of that, you have the Treasury issuing, let's say, deficit spending of a trillion dollars a year. That's a lot of duration. So, I mean, I, I don't know if it's something that you would have to be worried about. And if you are, it, it looks like just supply and demand, it, it might kind of steepen again. Joseph, do, do you have the inside dope here that the, is the Fed really going to go and drain, shrink the balance sheet? Like, they're, like, like mortgage prepayments are going to not get repaid and treasury maturities are not going to be reinvested? There's a whole lot of ways where you can stop you, buying but not be actually draining. So you think they're going to drain? You're, you're exactly right. There's, there's a whole lot of ways to do this. So I'm going by what Powell said on his uh, house testimony a couple of weeks ago, and he was thinking that he could shrink the balance sheet to about normal size in three years. And just looking at what the balance sheet was pre-COVID and where it's now, that's about a trillion dollars uh, a year for three years, so about $3 trillion total. So it looks like that's that's their plan right now. So I think I think they're just going to, you know, just let it roll off. And so what will happen is that the Treasury will have to issue new issuance to the private sector. And so that's new duration to the private sector and take that money and repay the Fed. Now, they, they might actually have to sell assets outright at some point, um, like you suggested. But I think that's probably in the future. And if that if that happens, things like I, you know, I, I think that's really um, bullish for like the rate fall, things like that. So you think the Fed actually is going to go and push back? Do you think the market is priced in the concept of actually removing a trillion a year? I think it's really hard to price that because you it's it's I think I think it's really hard for the market to know just what let's say so if you do QT a year it's a trillion dollars of new issuance to the private sector has to hold for a year and then on top of that you have another trillion dollars in deficit spending so a trillion dollars in, in in the new issuance from the treasury so that's two trillion a year I, I think it's really difficult to price price that in so and my sense is that it's 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 something that's just going to have to be slowly digested as time goes on. But you I got, can't see it. I can't see it at two two. I'd say two two point one on the ten year. We've got a question from Charles who asks: bullish TLT yields down? Question mark TLT referring to twenty plus years on the Treasury curve. So the long end of the curve, bullish TLT would be bond prices up, yields down. So quantitative tightening would mean rolling down the balance sheet. So more bonds on the free market, on the private markets, fewer bonds on the Fed's balance sheet. So greater supply, that should drive the price down and yields up, right? But uh, yeah. historically, Joseph, actually the opposite has happened that yields actually fall during periods of quantitative tightening. I know you've had a view that you think this time would be different. Uh, why would this time be different and actually this time yields would actually rise and it would be bad for TLT? Well, I think so. A lot of things determine yields. Sometimes the risk-off flows overwhelm, overwhelm QT. But if you look at what's happening the past few days, we have major risk-off days, and yet the bond market sells off as well. What's different now is that we have pretty high inflation. On top of that, we have a lot of supply coming on. So I think that's going to actually overwhelm risk-off flows this time, though. Um, not sure what Harley thinks, but it's it, it is a it is a complicated thing. It's it's hard to know beforehand just which will dominate. But um, you're, you're right, Jack. Sometimes that historical evidence is it, not super clear. Jack, you know, if you pull up the last slide, um, you're an interesting conundrum here. So uh, people who read my commentaries know that I'm, I'm I believe this is the best indicator of mortgage value. So it's the constant 
maturity MM. So it's the mortgage rate for the, the rate of the mortgage bond, Fannie or Freddie mortgage bond that you can buy in the open market, the price of par, um, minus the swap rate, the LIBOR rate. That is a forever average of about 72, 75, somewhere in there. You can see that um, last year it was in the low 40s as the Fed was really just buying up all the mortgages that existed. Um, it moved its way back up. It gapped higher in December when the Fed said, okay, guys, we're going to kind of end the party. We're now trading upwards of 100, which is way over the long-term average, which kind of means the mortgage market, uh-oh, they're going to stop recycling mortgage uh, uh, bonds. And remember, what mortgages are, when you pay your monthly mortgage check, if you look very carefully, if you pay $1,000, it might be $700 of interest and $300 of principal being paid. That principal has been recycled down by the Fed on top of the $40 billion they're buying. What they're saying now is they might stop buying the $40 billion a month and stop reinvesting, recycling the $300 of prepayments, you know, pay downs. Um, if they did that, you'd have massive mortgage supply, and the market seems to be pricing in. Uh, if we have that much mortgage paper coming to the market, we want a wider spread. What uh, we're not seeing, though, is the same thing in Treasury land and the yield curve. So it's a conundrum that I've not truly been able to untangle yet. But the mortgage market is certainly uh, front-running the Fed in terms of what they're going to do. That, that's so a really good yeah. point. Yeah, that's a really good point. So like Harley mentioned, QT seems to be working as it should for mortgages because you see the mortgage rates widen. But it doesn't seem to be working for Treasuries because you see the Treasury rate pretty, pretty stuck there. I think one of the reasons for that just uh, there's probably a lot of reasons but one of them just might be how the regulatory treatment for treasuries is so much more advantageous than for agency nbs a lot of people have to buy treasuries because under the regulations they're the highest quality collateral you can have they're hqa level one whereas let's say mortgages are hqa level 2a and so that difference sometimes makes treasuries more attractive so people are, are willing to hold them even even though um maybe from just an economic point of view, they're, they're not that attractive. So it could be just that discount manifesting. Mm. But not just that though, I mean, you have like a lot of sovereign people and so forth who have to hold treasuries because they just like it better. What what's the, What is the scenario in which the 10-2 spread actually does invert? We get negative 10, negative 20 basis points on uh, a treasury yield curve. How worried should investors be about that Harley given the fact that there, there are all these exceptions that you just talked about? The reason the curve inverts um, tends to, well, first off, the Fed is taking the front end as higher for a reason. Whatever it might be, the economy or inflation, for some reason, and they're taking rates up. So the overnight rate goes up, the three-month rate goes up, and this work up the two-year note. Usually, along with this, other rates rise also. So what you usually see in the world is um, what's known as a bear flattener. So the two-year rate might go up by 100 basis points. The 30-year rate will go up by 50. So that spread compresses, but both are going up. What we saw two, three months ago was totally anomalous. We saw the front-end rates going up, and 30 rates actually going down. So a twist to the curve. Very, very rare. Um, and I will tell you that when it happens, you see lots of blood in, in, in so many accounts because it's very hard to to manage that risk. Um, to get the two-year rate actually above the 10-year rate, um, it's not that the twos are going up per se, it's the 10s stop going up. So the 10s will, will, will pin, 
and the two-year goes above it uh, because the Fed's taking their action. And it pins because people think that there's overshot. Um, anomalously, we usually get these inversions midway through the Fed cycle. To get a near flattening before even the first move occurs yes. is, I, I, I call it insane, um, but here we are. Um, and, and, and once again, we have to be respectful. I mean, the market is putting, is pinning back end rates down for a reason. Um, uncovered, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not there's a reason that we know, but everyone's voting with their dollar. And, and the reason could be various. It, it could be that people want the security of a, of a treasury security because they want out of out of equities. Um, that's a possibility also. Um, but is it a recession? And maybe it is. But I, 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 I do want to highlight this, this real strange scenario of a near inversion that happens. Joe, you comment on that? Joe, I'm sorry. Could you, you yeah, repeat that last part? Joseph, just uh, just your thoughts on the fact that the yield curve is flirting with inversion before the Federal Reserve has already hiked, as Harley said. And by the way, to everyone watching, um, uh, we, we apologize. You know, uh, Harley's audio is coming in a little a little uh, clunky. You know, um, sorry about that. It's an internet issue. Um, but Joseph, Harley was saying that normally the Federal Reserve hikes, and let's say you saw this in 2018, they start oh, yeah, hiking. Yeah, yeah. They start hiking, and then they yeah. hike to invert the curve. This time, the yield curve is flirting with inversion before the first rate hike has even happened. What yeah, like Har like Harley mentioned, that that is strange, right? And you know, Harley, you've been watching this much longer than I have, so I, I, you know, it sounds like it's never happened before. But my sense is that uh, you know, it's just because Fed's choking the long end. The long end is basically socialized, not just by the Fed, but by the global central banks. You have the Fed only. Five and a half trillion dollars in treasuries. You have Bank of Japan negative rates. You have Eurozone negative rates. You have a lot of foreign investors just kind of, you know, just kind of grabbing the treasuries. So I think it's just, I think in the post GFC world, you know, all rates are basically some to some extent policy rates, and it's really hard to escape that, especially since let's say you have a very big central bank like like Japan um, doing yield curve control on the ten year. So that kind of anchors global rates in in a way that. That makes it less sensitive to, to what you would like to think of as market fundamentals. But Joseph, so, if you think of a, of, of a yield, sorry, if you think of a yield curve as sort of a wiggle room, as a, oh, the difference between the ten and the two spread, eighty basis points. That means the Fed has eighty basis points of wiggle room. It kind of seems like the Fed right now has so little wiggle room, and they haven't even started. Is that something that? investors should notice worry about have, have any thoughts about you know uh, whether it impacts risk assets or it actually means that the federal reserve won't be able to hike because if they do rate, uh, hike by five excuse me five rate hikes that means that the curve will be deeply underwater and deeply inverted which obviously is a you know recessionary signal well i would ask if it if it's a signal or does it actually cause is there some mechanics that makes it cause a recession that would be more concerning because if an inverted yield curve actually causes a recession by some mechanic, then you know you don't you want to avoid that. But if it's just a potential signal, then I don't worry about that because you know maybe the signal is not the same because you have all this official involvement. Mm. Harley, what do you think? Well, not to go and start proposing conspiracy theories, although it does seem to, seem to be the uh, the new meme in the market. Um, there is the scenario, just as uh, as I wrote about a curve inversion in 2018. Did that predict COVID? Well, clearly not, but I'll take credit for it. Um, perhaps what we have right now is 
um, the market or various players knew about this, you know, Russian invasion. And on the margin, you had, you know, China and, and Russia and maybe the Middle East, um, you know, having a little tete-a-tete and saying this is going to happen. And, and they're pushing the back end down to, to get their money to safety. Um, and that is when it started happening that we started getting things all together. I mean, I mean, it was November when the um, when NATO kind of kind of sort of said, well, maybe Ukraine might join the UK to uh, join NATO, um, and that's really when things started to start to happen. Well, maybe maybe that was it. Um, someone knew or people knew, and and it doesn't take that much to go and move the market on the margin. Um, it may be a multi-trillion-dollar mar- market, but a few billion here and there will will, will do it. And uh, and maybe that's what we have over here. And clearly, this war is going to go, and we're probably going to get a recession from the war. Um, and we can talk about inflation a little bit, I, I suppose. But I mean, inflation's here, anything going on, and inflation is a massively regressive tax. Um, and so, uh, uh, which basically is, is Powell's problem right now is how do you tighten into a uh, you know an oncoming train? Um, uh, and I'm not sure what he's going to do. Yeah, we've got a question asking exactly that. How much can the Fed tighten to deflect inflation? And how much can they tighten before something breaks? Uh, Joseph, I was just looking at the uh, Fed funds uh, futures rate. And uh, in late 2023, the terminal rate that it's applied by the market is about 2.5%. So that would be uh, what? That would be 10 rate hikes. I mean, is that is that possible? You know, what would break along the way, and is that something that the Federal Reserve can stomach because inflation is such a threat? You have you know eight percent inflation, ten percent producer price inflation. We just had today. Likely this month's March inflation, which will be released in April, will be much much higher because of oil and and the supply shock. Is inflation so bad, such a threat that the bull in the china shop? You know, you break a few glasses along the way, the Fed doesn't care. What do you think, Joseph? Wow, two and a half Fed funds? My gosh. <laughs> I wish I had some perspective on that. Uh, I mean, it's much, much higher in the past. You know, I was I was listening to Jerome's testimony um, at the house, and he, and he was open to multiple 50 basis point hikes. So I think he's prepared to do something, to do whatever it takes to tame inflation. But I would actually look about it like this. So the Fed has... So how does this tightening work? How does it work through the to the economy? I think of tightening the overnight rate, the short front end, as working through the banking system. And I think of adjusting portfolios, let's say QV, QT, as working through the capital markets, since it works from the medium to longer term rates. So I don't really, I, I think just the way the economy is set up today, the banking system simply isn't as influential in making loans and allocating capital the way it used to. What's really more important is the capital markets. So, I would pay too much attention as to how highly can hike the Fed once. I'd be more interested in what impact QT has on the yield curve, whether or not they're really uh, meaningfully steep in it. And that's that's really up to them. So um, it looks just it looks like they're quite determined to have an aggressive QT. And I think that would have significant impacts on all financial assets. Because let's say you have a 10 year at 3%, uh, that, that's, that's going to be very painful for risk assets, I think. But I think it would help bring down inflation by simply having a reverse wealth effect. Joseph, you know, I don't want to throw you under the bus or anything, but <laughs> if, if you go back to 2004, 5, 6, who was the real villain of the great potential crisis? Well, there's a lot of bad guys, okay? And, and, and I guess me on Wall Street, I, I was one of them. I'm not going to But, you know, one of the key contributors was the Fed and the concept of measured 
saying, hey, market, we're going to raise the rate by 25 cents every six weeks for X amount of time. And once you know that, as a speculator, you can go and sell like a 26 basis point out of the money put every six weeks. Free money because the Fed's what we're going to do. This is key contributors to the GFC, the great financial crisis, because people got over-levered, short convexity, over-risked, over their skis because they were told by the Fed what they're going to do. And this creates moral hazard. Now, I get the idea of forward guidance. I am not, I'm not in favor of the Fed dot plot because, once again, you're giving this kind of cold comfort to speculators and having them go and start placing bets on that and getting over their skis. You want people to be uncertain and to be afraid and to be nervous, manage their portfolio with a risk concept involved. And so once again, the Fed has contributed to their own problems over here by over-signaling and giving overconfidence. And and as I've written about uh, frequently, um, short convexity is always lurking at the scene of every kind of, you know, blow up. And once again, we're again with um with stuff so uh i i wish they would stop signaling and just uh, i think it's been proposed by a few people that maybe the fed should just throw dice uh, every week <laughs> um as crazy as that might sound seeing as they're the fed's inflation guesses are as wrong as everyone else's it is not that idea uh, but but you know, it's just signaling it, we want i want people to be to be scared i'm going be afraid i'm going to, to operate as if it's their own money as opposed to to uh you know gunslinging well, if you look, would you? It seems like the move index is indicating they're taking that approach, right? Uh, do we have the move index? We do. And Harley, and Harley, you invented this, right? So this is this is this is basically the VIX for for rates, and it looks like it's it's okay. Well, when you zoom out like that, it's a little bit less, but it looks like there's a lot more um, implied implied vol is going higher. So it looks like there's a lot more uncertainty into the market, right? Uh, well, Maybe it's that, not kind of like the. The VIX for bonds. Okay, I designed it that way. It's, it's implied vol for 30-day options. Um, yes and no. The reality is, I mean, the VIX right now, trading in the 30s, is actually well above the realized volatility of the S&P. We have seen rate moves uh, in the last month that have been pretty close to what the move's doing. Um, the, the rates have been realizing 8, 9, 10 basis points a day frequently. Uh, so in that case, the move basically going along with rates. The question is, why are rates moving so much? Uh, that's that's terribly interesting. But yeah, we, we've seen implied vols rise, and um, which which softens the blow to some degree because people have to be uh, more cautious with their trading. Um, but yeah, the, the move hit one, I think, one forty uh, last week, which is, it's only gotten above one twenty, you know, a handful of times in the last twenty five years. Yeah, and Harley, how is it that the the move could go at levels that were so close to March of 2020. I I guess that the simple answer is because bonds were moving that much. But you know, March of 2020 was such a stressful time when the, the Federal Reserve did a hundred basis point cut overnight, and you know that the ten year note went to 33 basis points, and it you know it almost blew up the global financial system. How is it that we're almost there yet? You know, I'm I kind of doesn't feel that way. Do you know what I mean? Um, well, if you, if, you, if you look at what the um, you know the, the reds are green, so basically the euro dollar futures one year and two years out, I mean, they've gone from basically, you know, 99.8. So basically, I mean, we may have forgotten the Fed had promised rates at zero until next year. They, 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 
roll the videotape. <laughs> they said that. So there's a lot of people who are basically banking on that happening and, and, and taking trades that would make money if that happened. Um, and all of a sudden, those trades all have to come off very quickly. Um, I, I don't think anyone expected um, you know, the, the Reds or the Greens to be trading a 97 handle um, this, this quickly. And, and rates are moving that much. Um, it, it, and I guess it's, they're not as people aren't as fearful. It, it, it's, it's not you know, a COVID you know, pandemic, but in many ways it is, you know, in terms of, you know, slamming on the brakes. You know, I mean, I, 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 look, Mike Reed is my partner and a personal friend. I love him. Jeff Snyder, eh. And, and he's, a, he's a smartest guy in the market, okay? But, you know, I'm really getting kind of tired. What if I'm going to give it up um, and admit that inflation is not transitory, you know? And, and, and the trolls out there, you know, gee, man, I'm sorry, but we have inflation. Like, what do I, what do I got to show you? You know, it's here. Uh, I said it was going to come and come. And, and what's also is that anomalously is that we talk about inflation and then core inflation. So we strip out food and energy. Isn't that backwards? <laughs> Should yes. core be food and energy? Isn't that what you need to live? I mean, food yeah. and energy are the two most inelastic things we have in the whole, you know, matrix here. So we're going backwards. And we haven't even begun to bleed in, you know, the cost we're going to have of higher oil and fossil fuels as they bleed in. If you look at the cost of fertilizers, they've doubled and tripled, all these other various things. Maybe they've not even got into the system yet. And uh, OER is a lagging indicator. It takes six to nine months to catch up. A 23, 22, 21, whatever it is you want to use, percent increase in housing prices. OER, and Joseph, you could comment on this, it's six to nine months behind that. So we got inflation in the pipe, and it's coming, man. And, and we're not going back to 2% anytime soon. Yeah. And Joseph, how should people be thinking about these supply shock inflationary dynamics? Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the wheat exploding higher, the oil exploding higher, natural gas, aluminum, all these raw commodities that will for sure make inflation uh, in March, that will again be reported in April, be way, way higher. That should budge, you know, short term inflation expectations up. Right, of course, because inflation will be up. It's short-term inflationary, but long-term it has the potential to be deflationary because it could destroy demand. Uh, and you know, I'm not—I'm by no means a deflationist. Uh, just to be clear with you, Harley. But uh, you know, if if the price of oil is at $140 and the price of gasoline in California, for example, is at seven bucks, people are going to be driving less. That means they're going to be going to malls less. They're going to be buying less. Shouldn't therefore the you know the 10-year note, the belly of the curve, the yield curve, and the long end of the yield curve actually actually be rallying somewhat because it's deflationary. What, what do you think about that? And just inflation in general? No. So I'll give you the textbook central bank policy answer for this. When you have these set of supply shocks like this, you look through them. Why? Because you believe that monetary policy acts with long variable lags. So by the time that uh, they do, they say if they hike in response to this, by the time it actually affects the economy, maybe that shock is over. And you can kind of see some logic to that. I mean, look at oil. It was 130, let's say, a few days ago. Today, it's below 100, right? So if you hiked immediately when you saw 130 oil, well, now it's not, now it's 100. So th there's some logic to that. But seriously, I mean, they've been saying this is a, just a shock, just a shock. It's transitory for too long. They've been completely wrong. You know, Harley, you were completely right. And like, you know, I've, I, I, I'm on your side, by the way. I always thought that inflation was going to be persistent. It's just kind of obvious. You print a whole bunch of money, you give it to people. Yes, yes, you're going to get a lot of inflation. That's super obvious. But at this point, it's hard to look, pat, look through this because the optics are, even if this is a temporary spike in, uh, 
let's say energy and uh, food, it's going to be on top of already elevated inflation readings. And saying that we're just going to temporarily have 15, you know, CPI, 15% CPI, that, that doesn't really comfort the public. So uh, I, I don't think they can look through this. They've been looking through uh, too much. I believe as a public policy concept, a steeper yield curve is advantageous. Um, it strengthens the banking system, it strengthens the insurance and pension systems, it, it, it transfers income from capital to people via higher interest rates. Um, all these things are, are good ideas. Shouldn't the Fed want to engineer a steeper curve by how they, uh, where they buy, where they don't buy, and push things around? I'm, I'm kind of surprised the Fed has not been, you know, helping the curve steepen. I'm thinking that they will actually take your advice and act tomorrow. So I'm, I'm getting the sense that there's going to be very aggressive steepening of the curve engineered by the Fed by simply a very aggressive quantitative tightening. Uh, I mean, listen, you have housing going up 20% a year. That, that's not normal, right? You a lot of people can't afford homes anymore. The way that you touch housing is not by hiking the Fed funds rate. People don't borrow mortgages at the overnight rate, but they do borrow at the 10-year and, uh, and how that feeds through to the mortgages. And like your chart showed, that's having an impact already on uh, primary mortgage rates. And now my guess is that if you do aggressive enough QT, that'll bleed into the 10 year as well. So I, I think they are trying to see from the curve. Well, I mean, as a boomer, I suppose I've been happy policies because they've elevated asset prices and elevated home prices by their various policies at the expense of my four kids who are going to have a much harder time buying a house or doing anything else. And, and, and I'm kind of you know, puzzled by this whole thing. I mean, if you go, nobody buys a house. Okay, but, uh, yes, Russian oil is cash, but no one buys a house. You say, I can afford 2000 a month, and you can back into how much house I can buy versus the interest rate and the down payment. And if you look at the last two years' movement in housing prices, it's about 80% absorbed or accounted for by the lower interest rate in the mortgage market. So the Fed buying mortgages has basically pushed up home prices against millennials who are at the exact point of household formation and having kids and moving out of smaller apartments into a home. It, it, it's been a, an insane public policy concept. And so, yes, I think I think widening mortgage spreads will take heat housing and allow millennials to buy the homes like they're supposed to. I mean, we're, we're, we're you know, many hundreds of thousands of homes short of, of the demographic right now. So that'd be a good, that'd be good public policy uh, in general. But Harley, doesn't it also increase... Uh the cost of a mortgage. So, you know, real estate was cheaper in 2009 than it was in 2007, but it was a way cheaper to buy a house in 2007 than 2009, right? When you buy a house, you own the house forever. Well, it's an asset. And the mortgage, um, it, how long are you going to have the mortgage for? So, look, I mean, there's no good answer. If the house price goes down, your mortgage goes up. I guess it, it, it's a wash. But uh, if you have a lower house price, then 20% down is a smaller number. And that's the same, the 20% is the 20%. So it does make um, it easier to buy to buy a home that way. And um, look, our housing price is going to go down? Probably not, but at least we can take them off the boil so wages can catch up. Um, by the way, inflation is not the worst thing in the world, right? If you, we have too much debt. We are a levered financial economy. For good or for ill, that's what we are. And the way you get rid of debt is you either have massive growth, like after World War II, which is not going to happen. Therefore, you default 
or inflation is a slow motion default. And so inflation uh, is, it, it, to some degree, is a good deed. Um, is 8% good? No. Would 4 be fine? Yeah, I think it would be. Uh, a way to go and basically devalue the, the debt um, to the benefit of, uh, of civilians. And you know, would that sort of financial repression, would that require keeping bond yields substantially below inflation? Because if that's kind of a 1940s scenario. People, One person was talking about this in the comments. The 1970s scenario is where inflation runs rampant and the Federal Reserve reacts, raising the federal, you know, I should say not the 1979 scenario, not the 1970s scenario. But you know, bond, yields, uh, bond yields are allowed to rise with inflation, and that is very bad for financial assets, but it does... You know, allow inflation to mitigate, or do you think that we'll have a 1940s scenario where inflation will be allowed to run way above bond yields, and will sort of that default by any other means will will be enacted, you know, that way via yield curve control? Well, what you're describing is a negative real rate. Yes. So interest rates, bond rates are underneath the inflation rate. I have no problem with that. I, I think I think the Fed probably would like to do that as a way to grow the economy while slowing you know inflation down. Um, can they engineer that? Ah, that's going to be, you know, putting a seven series. It's, it's going to be tight. Um, but that, that's probably where they want to go is to have higher nominal rates, but not so high that they're, they're, they're dangerous. Um, Joseph, you have a comment on that? No, no, I agree. It's going to be hard to do. Mm. Joseph, I, I want to ask you, obviously, tomorrow is going to be 25 basis points. Uh, when, when Harley made his comment about Ford guidance, which, by the way, I always love it when my guests say the name of my podcast. Ford. It makes me feel like I made a good decision naming it. Um, you know, uh, People were, uh, when, when Jay Powell indicated tomorrow is going to be a 25 basis point hike, that made it clear tomorrow is going to be a 25 basis hike. So people could sell a, a uh, euro dollar uh, put, I guess, you know, struck it at 27 basis points or, or 99.74, whatever. Uh Meaning that you know it's it's not it's not going to happen. Um, so I'm curious about your your thoughts about that for guidance, but also tomorrow, what is going to happen? What what are the comments that are going to be made? You know, what what is your expectations for what's going to happen? And also, can I can I can I hold you down on uh, your terminal rate? You think it's going to be higher than two and a half or lower? Hey, just just following up on that euro dollar comment. Hey, so if we go into a world, Harley, just trying trying to get a sense of, because you're the creator of the move index. In, if we go into a world where we have more uncertainty, would you would you expect um, implied to be above realized like like it is for for the VIX? Or I mean, I imagine part of the part of the reason why uh, implied and realized are, have been very narrow in the past is because forward guidance has been so strong and we've been on the zero lower bound. But like if we go to a more normal type of setting, will it become more like the VIX then? Look, I mean, the move for liquid instruments commodities, foreign exchange, stocks, bonds, short-term implied volatility tends to be 8 to 12% above realized. Um, and the move has generally been still above realized. It's realized has been so high. Um, uh, so so that, I, that will continue. And that's why you see sellers of one-month options all the time of ways to go and capture uh, that, that uh, I guess I won't call it an arbitrage, but that risk premium, right? And then that's why this huge slope uh, and you have investors, all these, you know, VIX type products, because the three month is usually well above the one month. We have buyers of six and, and, and three month options for hedging. And we have sellers of one month options for liquidity, uh, I don't call arbitrage, you know, risk premium. And that gets that slope there. Uh, that's going to continue. I don't think it goes away um, anytime soon. 
Um, but what you can say is, do you expect implied and realized to increase if we create uncertainty? The answer is yes, I do. Um, for most of, uh, for, for the late 80s, almost all the 90s, um, you saw the move between 80 and 120 forever. Um, and then once Greenspan pace, uh, that whole thing kind of dropped down by 20 points, basically uh, 60 to 100. So just another question. So when you so right now we have like the VIX really elevated, right? So if you wanted to buy options to hedge equity market exposure, it's it's pretty expensive. Does that entice some people to go and let's say buy calls in euro dollar options to hedge because it might be cheaper instead? I mean, will that does that fall bleed into the move index and in, in that is that a mechanism? Uh, that is a common strategy. Uh, is it is it a good one right now? That I don't know because balls are very very high. Um, you, even in the move index, just I guess, yeah, I can see that now. Historically, it, it is high. The problem you have, usually people who buy options on euro dollars, well, one year or two years, is because the forward rate is a lot higher than the spot rate. So the um, 2024 rate might be 4%, and the 2022 rate might be 2%. And so when you buy that call option on that forward, the market's already at four. You buy another way call struck at three. That's still like almost a point in the money versus today. So you have that, that wind at your back of the yield curve. Right now, we have an inversion in the front end. So the wind's going in your face. Oh, okay. Involved, involved buying call options on reds and green. Where the reds are your dollar futures, one year ahead. The greens are two years ahead. Those strategies... I could almost assure you without even looking at them right now, they're probably, they're probably terrible because the, the yield curve is working against you and you have very high calls. So Harley, that's your view on the euro dollar calls. What about euro dollar puts? I was speaking to two people, uh, one of them a macro fund manager and the other one, Mike Green, who said that they thought that the put options on euro dollars, in other words, betting that the Fed will hike and hike a lot and you get access to that long convexity was overpriced. So you're not in love with the euro dollar calls. What do you think about euro dollar puts, Harley? We're buying or selling them. I mean, but, sorry, Mike buying was, them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike wants to sell them. He's last time I checked, he wants yep, to sell yep. them. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, it's Look, we're, we, we've, priced, um, we've priced the curve to kind of what the Fed's been, been predicting for a quarter, two and a half, somewhere in there. Um, and so in theory, you know, if, if you believe uh, the Fed, you should, you should go and sell them. But I have no idea. With inflation running at 7, 8, um, and, I mean, in Volcker's shadow, kind of kind of uh, casting a, across the Fed right now, uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, it could be good. It could be bad. I view it, as a, I view it right now as a fair bet. Mm -hmm. I, th I, th I think they're all priced fairly, and it's coin flip either way. Uh, one more, well, I guess one could argue if you believe that a two, two and a half percent funds rate will crash us into recession, then yes, it's probably you should sell the puts and that, that's probably a good idea. But you have for that we're going into recession um, quickly. Um, here's the other problem with, with, with Mike's trade is that he's probably going to be right if he sells like the 97 and a half put on, on, on the green. He'll probably be right. The question is. To see if enough money is a to tolerate the margin call when rates back up on the first, you know, few Fed hikes. So and that's always the case here. It's not that you're that you're wrong at the end; is that you just can't survive the margin call. Um, and that's where the real risk is over here. Um, 
very few people actually go and, and put trades on and can ride them all the way to the end. Some can, but that's where the risk is, um, especially and if you, especially if you sell options as a longer term strategy. Because remember, if you sell an option, you have unlimited loss. So once it gets to where you know is as bad as it can get, it could get worse, um, and 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 you don't know at the time. And, and when you get things like you know March of 2020, um, uh, what, 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 what's what's the famous uh, expression? Um, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> you know, I, I will tell you that in March 2020, as smart as I think I am, I wasn't that smart, man. I'm under the mommy. Okay, it's not easy back then. And, and if we get that situation again, and right right now. The biggest thing to worry about is higher rates, not inflation, higher rates and lower stock prices. Because then what you have is all the risk parity people will get taken out in stretchers and they'll be forced to delever. So as a reminder, what's risk parity? An ordinary 60-40 portfolio is of 100 bucks. You put 60 in stocks and 40 in bonds and you're invested and all you can lose is all your money, which is not good, but whatever. This parity would say I have a hundred bucks. I buy seventy bucks in stocks, hundred in bonds. So now I have two hundred dollars invested. And the idea is they go like this back and forth and offset each other and create a, a hedge value, lower portfolio, higher return. This is why Ray Dalio is a billionaire. This is what he did. Take the parity, or at least took the idea and really ramped it up to a few hundred billion. Fine idea, but if you go down at the same time. Then you got to go and start taking the legs off of this thing because remember you have 200 bucks invested, only a hundred dollars of capital, and you saw this happen in in in, in um, November December of 18, and it happened in March of 2020. When both go down, you get crazy town because the risk parity guys got to delever. It, will we get that now? I don't know, but that really is the risk. If that starts hyping things up and stocks and bonds both go down, um, you know what your mommy. Harley, at the risk of sounding dramatic, I think we already are, are seeing that. Uh, you know, a lot of risk parity funds are, you know, are in the stretcher. I think people are saying this is the worst uh, two months start to a year in, for the 60-40 ever. You have the, the buy and hold strategy being beaten by every single uh, uh, technical strategy in the Bloomberg index, which are like you know, more, easily more than 100 of those. Uh, and yeah, stocks and bonds are down together. You know, S&P down over 10%, TLT not faring too well. I think down over 10% as well. And again, the, the risk parity, uh, just because uh, you know your, your connection is good now, Harley, but just so everyone heard it, you said risk parity is 70% stocks, 130% bonds. So you're borrowing half of the money to, to do that account. And it really depends on that negative correlations between stocks and bonds. When stocks sell off, bonds are supposed to be your, your head, your positive carry put, but they have not been a positive carry put. They have sold off alongside stocks. Joseph, sorry, I interrupted you. What are, what are your thoughts uh, on this? I, I was just going to add to that. So it, it's risk parity strategy is obviously a huge part of this and they're levered so they feel the pain enormously, but there's a lot of unlevered funds who do the same strategy. Let's say the target date funds, right? So they hold a lot of bonds and they hold a lot of stocks. And when one sells off, they're going to have to rebalance as well. And if you're a retail, I mean, you're basically raised on a 60-40 portfolio, which is an unlevered version of risk parity. So uh, when 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 the bond market sells off, you kind of have to sell equities to rebalance. And so that's how the pain mechanically works. Like you mentioned, Jack, there's a Twitter handle on uh, called Wifey. She, she, uh, well, the Twitter handle says that, you know, so bonds are a hedge for stocks, but stocks are not a hedge for bonds. And when the Fed is hawkish, 
it's basically mechanically reducing the value of bonds. And you know that just mechanically bleeds into the equity markets and it's very negative for risk assets. Yesterday, for example, we had the tenure down over 10 basis points and uh, the stock market's only up over 1%. That was a terrible day for, for all funds who are using that kind of strategy. We don't have this, this slide with us today, but you can go to my website, uh, convexdmaven.com. I've posted this uh, chart numerous times. Um, what we saw prior to the year 2000 was that stocks and bonds kind of moved quasi-randomly. The correlation was up and down, above and below zero. What we've seen since you know, 2000, 2002 is that stocks and bonds have acted in opposite directions. Um, so stocks up, bonds down. Usually this correlation is quoted as a positive where you compare stock prices to bond yields. And that's a technical reason why you have to do it. But that's what it's been. Um, the charts I have there show, it's not a prediction, but historically, that once you get inflation or um, above two and a half and rates above four-ish, that correlation flips where stocks and bonds move together. And this really is the, the real nut over here is if we do get rates up, inflation up enough, you're going to see stocks and bonds move in unison and, uh, together, and that will be the, the, the killer blow for uh, risk parity, actually for all financial assets that will going out at the same time. So will that happen? That's why we should be concerned about if rates go above 4% that, um, well, it's not going to be pretty. What's happened so far, fortunately, is that stocks have been relatively, you know, ARC aside, the tech aside, overall spoos have been going down nicely. So people have had time to readjust their portfolios. The risk parity guys, the, the real big guys, run on longer-term correlations and longer-term moving averages. They slowly, as long as the market's kind of slowly going on down, they go and get out in an orderly fashion. And that's, we've seen, you know, little bear market rallies here that give them a chance to get out. The problem would be if we got, a, you know, these big kind of drops in the market, like we had in 18 or we had in 2020, where, you know, they can't get out fast enough. And it's too illiquid. Um, so, so far, it's been hurting it hasn't been a panic and you know that, that you know what that's a good thing if they lose money i feel bad but as long as we have liquidity and a slow grinding market that that is better as a public policy concept mm. so jo joseph i asked harley about the euro dollar uh put contracts i think you know somewhere close to the terminal rate 2023 2024 he said it was about even money uh joseph what do you think do you think that the realized terminal rate and realized terminal rate will be higher or lower than the two and a half percent that's implied by uh, now. And you can give a, a probabilistic range, of course. You don't have to say a single number. No, no, I, I think so. For me, I, I think the bigger part of the tightening is going to be in the term premium just through quantitative tightening. So I think if you have an aggressive QT, you can go to two and a half and that will be fine. And I, I think the, 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 the term premium would do most of the work. Um, but if you don't have an aggressive QT, I, I think you probably have to hike higher. So um, I think I think we'll figure out how aggressive QT is, and then and, and then we'll see. Um, I think two and a half is actually pretty ambitious because we weren't able to make it that 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 much uh, last time around, right? And this time around, you have you know even more debt in the system, and I think that is a constraint because when you raise rates, you're basically reducing the value of debt, and through the mechanisms that Harley and you describe, that hurts risk assets, right? So the more fixed income assets you have, the more pain there is when you hike rates. So if we weren't able to go very high last time, this time we might not be able to go uh, very high either.
I, I would add to that that there are a lot of equities out there that are kind of like bond proxies. So your FANG stocks are basically 70-year duration bonds. Why is that? Um, let's stipulate that Amazon or Tesla or whatever are going to make a trillion dollars in profits, clean, legit, gap profits in 30 years. Guaranteed. Question is, what is a trillion dollars worth today? And that's why you see these long um, profit growth stocks, even though they're great companies, the value of them in today's price is so uncertain and tends to move with bonds, right? Um, as rates go up, those stocks go down. And that's why. And that's sure when you're running your portfolios, you know, if you look at like a, like a Visa or, or, or a Con Ad, I mean, those are one kind of stock, right? These long tech stocks are more like bonds in, in many respects. I'm not saying you should sell them. I'm not saying you shouldn't own them. I'm saying as you risk manage them, consider them to be quasi-bond-like. Uh, so when you do your balancing, to some degree, owning those is owning bonds also. Yeah, be because so much of the cash that they're, they're going to give to investors or generate for investors, I should say, is going to be well into the future, especially if you yeah. look at like a non-profitable technology company uh, like, I don't know, Peloton, you know, which up until recently, <laughs> maybe six months ago, was, was priced for the fact that, yeah, it's going to make a bunch of money in 2028. So the money that in 2028 is not going to be worth as much if you have 10% inflation. Uh, and then it's the same reason for, for a 30-year bond. Uh, Harley, I want to ask you, and just I want to get you into on this, is so the yield curve has not technically inverted. The 10-2 spread, which everyone talks about, that's a, vanilla, that's a standard inverted curve. That's at 30 basis points, not negative 30, 30 basis points. Uh, however, there are sort of like some off-brand yield curve inversions that people have talked about. People have talked about the forward overnight index swap rate, which way over my head, uh, as well as the forward 10-2 uh, spread one year. And, and also I saw uh, someone recently talking about the 10-year, uh, 7-year spread. So what do you what do you make of these sort of uh, yield curve inversions that are a little bit off-brand, you know? Joseph, go ahead. <laughs> I think people are just trying to find a reason to say that the world is ending. <laughs> but I listen, like 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 I mentioned before, I think there's a huge difference between the pre-GFC world and the post-GFC world. Post-GFC, I think, look, looking on, a lot of rates are just quasi-policy rates, so I, I don't actually worry about this at all. Um, but uh, uh, Harley, what do you, I, Harley, what what do you think? I think what I, I, mean, what I think is this. Um, <laughs> So I write a macro economic commentary. Anyone wants it, just send me an email and I'll add it to my list. And I only publish every, you know, six weeks. I publish when I have something to say. And there are people there who want to write a lot, once a week, once a day. There's nothing new. Maybe a war is new, but really nothing new where you could write every day. It's like it's clever and interesting and, and to, to, to go and read. And I think a lot of these charts here are people who have to write every day or once a week, and they've got to find something to, to talk about. they got to find some reason to know the sky's falling. Um, I mean, no one cares about happy days. I mean, what's what's the old adage for newspapers? If, if it bleeds, it leads. People are looking for, they're looking for a story here to go and say the world's ending. I, I'm not going to go there. Um, the, the Cam Harvey said um, it's three months versus 10 years. I prefer to stick with two's tens. Um, but I mean... Um, I, I, I think the other thing is people looking for trouble. And, and, and I, I have a chart I think uh, we have in there, Jack, about fives, tens, no, not that, keep going. 
Um, okay. This one? Nope. There we go. So this is the five-year, 10-year, one-year forward. I will admit that I wrote this. I, I, I built it. I put it out there. It's contrived nonsense, okay? <laughs> five stories, one year forward. I mean, I looked for segment inverted. Okay, I found it. <laughs> well, that's all. Give them a sad story. There are people that like five thirties, and there is a good, fundamental, sound reason for the 30-year rate. Um, the point of this, I said, was kind of a straw man to knock down. Like, if you want to go and find a scary story, here it is. But I did not sign up and say, oh, yes, this now predicts a recession. Um, but this is an idea where you can get, you can build a good chart if you know where to look. Um, so it's, it, it's basically kind of, uh, you know, what, what do they call it? Manipulating your uh, back testing for, 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 for gold. So um, <laughs> yeah, it only goes up, man. Um, also, Harley, you had a really good point about uh, how to interpret uh, forward rates. Um, yes. I think there's a, yeah, I think there, there's a lot of confusion on Twitter, but it, it was really good that how you, how you set everyone straight about how, how, how basically forward rates are formed. Uh, yeah, I, my, the last commentary I wrote was was about forward rates, and um, if, if if you want to get me uh, maybe into a fistfight in a bar, uh, start telling me that um, forward rates are the market's prediction of the future. It is not that at all. Forward rates are strictly arbitrage-free pricing mechanism. So, for example, if the one-year rate is two percent and the two-year rate is three percent, which one should you buy? Well, you'd only buy it if you buy the one year at two, you buy the one year again a year later at four on compounding. So you've earned an average of three over that time. So then they're equal. If you have a structure, as I've described, of the one year rate at two and the two year rate at three, you can buy in the market or professionals can the one year rate, one year forward, and it will be 4%. Because if it's not, I will buy and sell a little triangle trade until the thing goes back to where those prices are and I will lock in a profit. And, and by the way, if you remember the book Liar's Poker and the famous guy, Sally Arb, this is precisely what they figured out 40 years ago was that these things had to add up. And so when the futures market first started trading, they went in there and they forced all these spreads back into line and earned free money because nobody else was doing it. That's all a forward rate is, is the mathematical discounting of the spot curve. Now, a very steep curve, does that mean something? Yes, it does. There's information there, but it's not a prediction. So that's my comment on that. Okay, so you, you think, uh, tell me where I'm putting words in your mouth, Harley, but you, you think that people who were talking about a one-year forward rate and that it's inverted it does not mean that a recession is imminent. It does not have the predictive power that a current 10-year, two-year spread would have. Yes, it doesn't. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, J Joseph, you agree? Yeah, yeah, no. I, I, you know, I, is going to know more about constructing these forward curves than I do, so I'm <laughs> deferred to him. Mm. Uh, if I, I want to ask a question, a closing question to to both of you, which is. What do you, if you look at the interest rate universe now, options, forwards, everything, 
How do you think it will be different after tomorrow's FOMC meeting? You know, Joseph, we were talking about this before we went live, and you said not only would you, you think it was going to be a hawkish meeting, not only would the front end sell off anticipating further rate hikes, but that the 10-year would sell off, the belly would sell off, the 30-year would sell off, meaning TLT would go down. And that's really interesting because you know, like in 2021, we saw that hawkish meetings actually were bullish for TLT. Um, although you can talk about flows and, and the reasons that. So so how do you think the, the bond market will interpret tomorrow's meeting? Well, um, I, Joe, you want to go first? You're a Fed guy. No, go, go ahead. <laughs> well, I, was, well, I kind of already said what I've had. Obviously, it's going to depend upon what actually happens. Notwithstanding, I, I threw Jeff Snyder under the bus a few minutes ago. He, he, he's a good guy and he's smarter than I am. Um, he's just wrong about inflation. But but what he has brought up is that historically, over the last X number of years, is that we've seen rates go up when the Fed is, is buying and rates go down when the Fed is selling, which is kind of anomalous, but whatever, whatever. What we're going to find out in the next week is, does that path continue? If Joseph is right and the Fed actually is going to go and effectively sell, which means either they hit the bid or they just stop selling, which is selling, um, as opposed to just being flat, as opposed to just not buying. If they go and do that, we're going to see if the last 20 years of history is the same or not. And which way is it going to be? I don't know. I mean, we've all seemed to think that rates are going to go higher. But, you know, uh, Jeff Snyder has um, charts and graphs that will show you rates will go down. And that will be the big news uh, in the next week. Oh, and I would also add that, um, so for, for, for if you're a professional, there's a lot of ways to get exposure to things like ratefall. But if you are a retail, there's a lot less. Uh, one of the ways that retail can get access is that there is an ETF by Simplify that is able to, uh, that does actually have, uh, gives you exposure to that. And I, I don't know, do you have the ticker with you, Jack? Uh, yeah, it's uh, PFIX. Yes, and of course, this is not investment advice, but just so you guys know that this exists. Yes. I, 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 I will not mention tickers or anything else, but I will say that if you are concerned that rates go, are rates going higher, you should go to the website and go look it up. It, 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 it's a very interesting uh, product because uh, it's a straight up, uh, it's a way to get direct exposure to interest rates. Um, and, and the key thing is it, it's real rates, not real, it's rates going up or down the change in rates. Remember, a lot of these various uh, products out there are daily changes, These, which are fine for a one-day or one-week trade. The products out there that are based upon daily changes, I beg of you, do not touch them. Go away, please, quickly. Remember, if you go down by 20% from 100 to 80, you have to go up by 25% to get back to 100 again. So all the products that are daily changes are a slow grind down to zero, okay? You wanna find products that are based upon an index and an absolute value. So if things go up, you win. If they go down, you lose, and, and, and you win by end up. Uh, we have products that are like that uh, at simplify.us. There are other firms that have them also. Those are fine, use them too. Please stay away from the daily change products unless you are doing a one day or two day trade. It's fine also, but it's not an investment. Those are a trade. 
Yes, and also I think, uh, Harley, if, if I understand what's in the Simplify ETF in, in question is it's not like if you buy a, you know, to a, to a civilian, I know you like to use the phrase civilian, the longest duration you can get on a, a uh, put on TLT, I think is you know two years. And that's fine that if, if we're in this inflationary area, TLT goes to 100, you're going to make some money on that. But let's say we're in a long-term secular inflation period, you only get that exposure for two years. But I think you're the, the you get options that are like seven years in duration that really could, you can lock in a low volatility level, right? So the product we designed has a seven-year option embedded, so the decay pattern is very slow. It is designed to be an investment with a couple-year profile. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I designed it specifically for this kind of concept, and the timing seems to be rather propitious right now. All right. Uh, Joseph, I'll give you the final word. Uh do you think tomorrow's FOMC meeting will be dovish, hawkish, or very hawkish, and why? I think it'll be very hawkish, and I think we're at an inflection point in how uh, monetary policy is being conducted, not just in the Fed, but throughout the world. We are heading into a world where rates are going higher, and it's going to be hugely disruptive. Um, so one of the ways that you can think about this is that when you deficit spend, you're basically printing treasuries and printing a form of sovereign debt which is for money out to spend. And we, the United States and all the developed world has been doing this for a very long time. And now they seem to be losing control. So we're trying to get control back. And so this is not just the Fed, it's also the ECB and maybe, maybe even the uh, Bank of Japan. So this is kind of a global change, I think, that, that we'll be beginning to see tomorrow. Mm. Wonderful. Well, it's, uh, we're past an hour. Amazing how quickly time flies. I'm talking with you guys. Uh, Harley, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. People can uh, find Harley's writings at uh, convexitymaven.com. That's also his Twitter handle. Uh, Joseph Wang's writing at FedGuy12, uh, FedGuy.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Uh, please like and subscribe. And you know, Joseph and I will be here next week uh, breaking the FOMC meeting down for all of you. Thanks again and have a good night.